Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. As a humanist, my faith lies in humanity, not in the supernatural. And if you believe spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. In this episode, I talk with Chris Stedman about his new book, IRL. Chris came to prominence with Faithiest, his blog, and then his book by the same title. It was about atheists who were not virulently anti-religious. We've moved in many of the same circles over the years, Chris and I. Uh, He was the humanist chaplain at Yale towards the end of my time there. But we didn't meet at a humanist event or uh, a talk. Instead, we met in the strangest of all places, uh, something that I could only describe as an alien's egg. But more on that in a moment. For this new book, IRL, Chris considers what it is to be real in an age of social media and internet communities. Are online relationships real relationships? This is an important question, especially for non-believers who often find community in online spaces as opposed to in-person communities. You may have noticed that in the past few episodes, I've recently talked a lot about community. For example, in The Rise and Fall of New Atheism, I talked with Mike Myers uh, about the New Atheist Movement and how primarily it existed online in YouTube and Reddit in my conversation with uh, Nick Fish, the current president of American Atheists, he talked about the advantages of in-person congregations for grassroots organizing and collective action. And in my previous episode with Bart Campolo, we spoke about how to create an in-person congregation of non-believers and some of the difficulties associated with that. In this episode, Chris and I are taking on that question, but from a different angle. And Chris has a much more open uh, perspective about the promises of online community, though he's not blind to its pitfalls. He recognizes that we live in both the physical and digital worlds, and both of them have a reality to them. And now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Stedman. Chris Stedman, welcome to Reenchantment. Oh, thank you so much. Now, Chris, I want to I want to start off with a new a new little segment. You know, if this doesn't work, I'll just cut it out. But <laughs> I wanna I wanna ask what what's something that strikes you as wondrous or awe inspiring about this world? Oh, that, I love this question, and I I want to just sort of go with my gut here, but. I'm actually, I'm going to sort of crib a little bit off of a conversation you and I were having before we started recording, um, which is that I, so yesterday I I did an event with Cornell over Zoom and it it was a little early because they're on um, the East Coast, I'm in Central Time and Mm -hmm. um, they wanted to do it right at the beginning of their day. And so I had to get up a little earlier than I usually do. And I wanted to wake up with enough time to kind of let myself fully wake up (laughs) before doing the session and so i love to start my day with a walk i just find that it it really helps me sort of get centered and and so i was doing the walk a little earlier than what i usually do and the sun was coming up and the weather was just absolutely perfect i think fall is easily my favorite season and especially this year when i've spent a lot more time indoors than i usually do for many different reasons i I just I, i found myself so I just, I find when I'm, I'm on a walk, even if it's, even though I'm sort of walking through the same neighborhood, I always walk through, I've lived in the same, you know, apartment for the last three years now. I know the neighborhood really well, but something about, especially that time of day when everyone is sort of still waking up and the world just feels so full of possibility, even this year, <laughs> I just find it engenders a sense of hope in me that, sometimes feels hard to bring forth Mm. and and that i'm able to see new things in a space that's so familiar a a place that i've that i walk every day um and and sometimes it's just a matter of walking it at a different hour than i usually do that kind of enables you know me to see things i might not otherwise so that for me yesterday i found that that 
the getting up a little earlier than I usually do and and walking the neighborhood when it was a little quieter and the world Mm. felt just a little bit more full of possibility. It just changed the course of my whole day. So that's that's what's doing it for me right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I know that feeling of fall where there's a crispness in the air and and you know just it feels like a new start. Because I've been in academia most of my life in one way or another, either as a student or working in higher ed. But there is something about the fall that just feels like, even though it's a really it's a time of death, right? Everything's sort of dying, so that. We can sure, enter winter sure. and, and find the new life of spring. I find fall to feel, for me, like so much more of a time of, of newness than, than any other season. Yeah, and just this year, like I've connected much more with the my my Jewish heritage in the sense of like, oh, the new year starts in fall, yeah. the new year's. Yeah. And so uh, it, just, it just feels so much more right. It makes so much more sense. And there's a poetic beauty between like the parallels of, of death and dying and, and starting anew. Yeah, well, it's, I, I, I'm sure that this is not an unfamiliar story to you, given that actually this appears now in in both of my books but when i was 18 i got my first tattoo and i was still a christian at that point and it it's on my right leg it's a stalk of wheat and it has the verse john 12 24 on it which is it's a, a part of the bible where jesus is speaking and he's saying i tell you for certain that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies it will remain but one grain but if it dies it bears much fruit mm-hmm. and the reason i got it was this idea that that death and, and sort of letting go of things that you're attached to can be an opportunity for new new life, new opportunities. And of course, I was thinking of it at the time in a sort of Christian frame. And when I stopped being a Christian, I sort of initially looked at that tattoo with resentment or embarrassment. But of course, that's that's still a thing that I believe. I've just kind of reframed the way that I think about it. But yeah, but, and and I think this this the new book certainly but both of them really were kind of born out of moments when i had to kind of let go of ways of seeing the world that i had been attached to and try something new yeah so let's let's just uh jump right into it so you have a new book coming out and before we get to that i want to talk about your old book first Uh, so you you first came became you know, known in the the world of well atheism and and humanism and and non-belief with your blog Faithiest and then the book that came out of that also called Faithiest and it was basically about the in your own words uh, the power of seeking common ground between people of different worldviews and you you know talk about yourself as an inclusive atheist who, who is not anti-religious and it was is, is that does that feel right? Is that uh, did I yeah. portray you appropriately? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't I don't know if you remember this exactly, but we we met once in real life, IRL. <laughs> it was you were the humanist chaplain at Yale at the time, and I was I think I was I just graduating or or had just graduated from Yale, and it was at like some bizarre art exhibit with like fluorescent lighting and and weird art everywhere. And I I just remember like going inside this little kind of like a pod like thing with two seats inside of it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and I, and we just like, I started. I still have pictures. I still have pictures from that. (laughs) Very, very strange art installation. Super strange. Yeah. Yeah. It was so striking. I wish that, anyone who is listening to this, I wish this is one moment where I'm like a podcast is an inadequate medium for this story because the visual component just feels so important. Anyway, please yeah, continue. yeah. And it was just, I, I, I didn't, I didn't really know who you were at the time, but I, I kind of heard about, about you on campus and I'd never, I regret never, never going to any of the humanist events at the time. But yeah, we, we had, we had that one strange, bizarre encounter. And then later when I was, I moved back to Boston and I was part of the humanist hub and Greg was telling me about oh Chris Stedman like you should check him out he used to he used to uh, be at HDS uh, Harvard Divinity School and all this and I was like oh wait I sat in, in that yeah, weird our weird crossed in a strange pond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it was almost as they do yeah. it was almost like a like an alien womb or something anyway so that's that's uh, our our one our one brief IRL encounter and that's a good segue because your new book is called IRL. And so IRL, for those that don't know, it means in real life. And it's something that's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a term that comes from like the dating world, dating apps. 
Often, yeah. I think that's like one of the most common places that, but I mean, really like it's, it's kind of used to signal this distinction between digital life and the rest of life. Right. So what happens online, that's sort of one thing and everything else is sort of real life. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's a big part of what your book is about, how we have these two lives, one, you know, in the physical reality, the physical plane, and then the other one in this, well, ethereal, non-physical plane, the, the online realm. And sometimes those, those worlds are, are very similar and they, they, they're kind of entwined and other times we have completely different personas online and, and we or we present a only our best selves or only a certain version of ourselves online and that brings up all these questions about well what is what does it mean to be real like is that real is that not and that's the kind of core question of your book right yeah yeah that's right yeah and I, I think like and obviously we'll get into all of this if in, in whatever like I'm, I'm i'm super interested because i know you've been reading the book i'm very interested to hear what you think i i'll tell you right now i loved it i really <laughs> loved it oh thank thank you uh, i'll, t- I'll tell you i'll tell you why in a bit but but okay well i'm i'm happy to hear that but i for me like i think I remember when I was sharing with some people that this was the the sort of project that I was working because you know when I when I first started working on this book I was meeting with different literary agents because I didn't work with a literary agent on my first book which I had a wonderful experience with it but with this one I really wanted to work with someone who could kind of help me think through the book a little bit more before I even really sort of brought it to a publisher and I ended up finding this wonderful agent who co-runs an independent literary agency here in town, actually. And so we've been able to. And you're you know, you're friends. in uh, Minnesota, in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis. Yeah. Yep. And 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 but so I remember when I was sort of talking to people about the project, some people th- would sort of comment to me that it, it felt like a real departure from the first book. But in my mm. mind, um, I mean, in my mind, they're very connected because the kind of driving questions of my life have been these questions of sort of how do we how do we make sense of our lives where do we find a place in the world that, that can not only offer us a sense of belonging and identity but also give us opportunities to sort of pose these questions to ourselves that i think are central to being an, an engaged person what what is my responsibility to the world around me what should i do in the face of injustice these kinds of questions and 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 working as a humanist chaplain for the better part of a decade, I found that so many of the students I was working with who were religiously unaffiliated were moving these really big parts of their lives where they sort of grappled with these kinds of questions into digital space. Yeah. The internet was no longer a place that they were going just to kind of report out what they had been experiencing elsewhere. It was actually a place where where real life was happening. And, and I looked at my own life and I saw all kinds of evidence that that was the case too. Hmm. And I think as people are moving out of religious institutions more and more and sort of moving that work into digital space, there's this idea that we're rejecting institutions and moving into a sort of institutionless world. Mm -hmm. But the internet is its own kind of institution with all kinds of sort of norms and conventions that are often nearly imperceptible to us. And and in fact, are often sort of designed to be invisible. (laughs) And so I wanted to try and investigate them a little bit more and, and ask if we're using the internet to explore these sort of central questions of what it means to be human, what does that offer us both in terms of challenges and also opportunities yeah yeah it's i was gonna i was gonna mention that point exactly that in some ways it, this book feels like a very different topic than uh, than faithiest but at the same time it, i guess my sense in this book was that you were both moving away from the direct subject of atheism religion and really coming at it from a different different perspective of really it's about meaning making who am i how do i live you know mm-hmm. life and and these these as you said what are the your responsibilities to the world and you talk about in the book how these were the very same questions that brought you into the church when you were an adolescent seeking a, a desire to know and 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 who who want, who you are and really the deeper layers of our purpose in this world and it is it is funny though because when I when I was first working on the book I was like in some ways I felt quite sort of 
liberated by this. I was like, I'm not writing a book about atheism. <laughs> in fact, I remember, oh yeah, this is what I was going to say about agents. When I was first meeting with some agents, all of them, everyone I met with wanted me to write basically like Faithiest 2. And I I felt like I you know, was being sort of pulled in a different direction. And I was very fortunate because the agent I ended up finding and working with wanted to support me in writing the book that I wanted to write and, and saw what the connections were. But but I, re- I remember early on being like, oh, I'm not writing a book about atheism or humanism. Okay. But then, of course, you've read it now. Of course, these questions um, are all over the book. Right, um, right. And I think that I, as I was writing it, I found that, of course, like, we, we bring, I mean, if, if you, in order to write a book, you need to sort of bring you, who you are to the project. And, and so the way that I see the world is deeply shaped by these kinds of questions, these ways of thinking about things. So, of course, it's all over the book. Um, Yeah, yeah. And it's talking about bringing yourself to uh, what you're creating. That's actually one of the things that I really liked about the book, one of the many things. But you talk, you talk a lot about how in the online world, it's it's sometimes hard to be uh, authentic, or that authenticity is uh, performed and commodified. The more authentic you can seem, the more followers you can get, the more money you can you can make. And so you make the point that uh, a lot a lot of times authentic, this authenticity culture online sometimes feels fake. And I wanted to say that your book did not feel fake. It, it feels it feels very authentic. And I, I want to ask, like, what are what are some of the ways in which, in, in your eyes, uh, you you were able to, to to do that to bring something that feels very real and and, and honest? Mm. I mean, I honestly, I feel like being online has really. So one of the sort of big points of the book is that our digital looking at our digital lives, which so for for so much of our digital lives, because it's so new and it sort of um, became such a large part of our lives so suddenly, we haven't really been encouraged to ask critical questions about what, we, what we're doing online and why. And one of the central arguments that the book tries to make is that by looking at our digital behaviors, we actually have an opportunity to learn more about ourselves and to kind of reapproach some of these age-old questions of meaning and, and purpose and, and to, to look at our sort of amateurist amateurish digital behaviors and see what it is in those that we're trying to accomplish so Mm. i'm teaching an online class this semester at a university on the search for meaning Mm. and when i was structuring the class because the only teaching i've done prior to this semester has been in a physical classroom and so when i was coming up with how do I teach this digital class? I kind of had to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what are the things that I really want students to get out of this experience? And how can I go about sort of offering those in a digital space? And so because we're trying to do things that we're not good at yet, that are so new online, we have to kind of ask ourselves what it is that we actually need in order to feel authentic, in order to feel like we have a sense of belonging, in order to feel like ourselves. And so... I've I learned a lot over the last four years of really looking at my digital habits and, and asking myself, like, what's going on here? What am I actually trying to achieve when I do this? What when I when I spend an hour on Twitter, what is that about? Mm-hmm. And I, I referenced this in the book. But one thing that I found really helpful, because there's there's all kinds of studies that suggest that the more time you spend online, the unhappier you are, the more time on the Internet makes you lonelier more narcissistic. There's, there's more the, social, the social dilemma recently. The documentary yeah, talks exactly. all about that. Exactly. But there was this eight-year longitudinal study out of BYU that kind of complicates that because they found that people could spend the same amount of time online but have very different experiences mm-hmm. and that it came down to what it was that people were trying to experience online. So in the book, I talk at one point about the difference between sort of shallow play and deep play. So shallow play is kind of like you're at a casino and you keep sort of pulling the slot machine lever trying to, to win big. Mm-hmm. Deep play is sort of like the, the childhood imagination games I played with my siblings where you're entering into this sort of imaginative space, this constructive space, you're playing with identity, you're forging meaningful connections. Mm-hmm. And online, you can sort of engage in shallow play where you're just sort of trying to rack up likes and retweets and whatever, or you can enter into deep play like some of the people I interviewed for the book who use digital spaces to explore identity and 
those kinds of things and that a lot of it comes down to sort of whether or not we're being intentional about how we engage online. Now, the odds are sort of stacked against us, at least right now, which is another thing I talk about in the book, the platforms that we use to sort of explore who we are and find meaningful connection are run by companies that are driven by a desire to make money, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're going to encourage behavior that makes them money. And right now it's sort of, they don't really care what our experience of the internet is. They just care that we're spending time online. Mm -hmm. And so if it's easier to keep people clicking and scrolling by making them angry, by making them anxious, that will be the priority. Um, And so just like with climate change, I can recycle all I want, but until the major companies that are responsible for the majority of pollution change their, you know, activities, my individual behavior change might impact the way I experience the world, but it's not going to result in the kind of systemic change that we need. And so when it comes to the internet, we do need systemic change, but you can make, you can inject your digital life with a little bit more sort of intention And I think that can fundamentally change what your experience is. And so writing the book for me, like, you know, if, you know, and I am, I am happy with, I mean, I I literally just yesterday was talking with a friend who had read both books and he said, you know, this is not a, any, a a criticism of Faithiest because he enjoyed Faithiest and whatever, but he said, you know, this new one feels a lot more like you. Mm. And, and I do think that if that is the case, if the book does feel sort of more quote unquote authentic with all the caveats that you already have provided about authenticity being sort of this performance or, or being commodified. But if that is the case, I think it is a, a result of the kind of investigating of the last four years that I went into both in trying to sort of learn more about how digital life functions, but also to look at my own digital habits and sort of see try to understand what's going on in them. Yeah. Um, and and this, I, I think I, I draw this parallel at one point in the book, but it's it's a kind of mindfulness practice, right? Um, mm. Just like in, in mindfulness practice, you try to sort of look at your own patterns of thinking, your own actions, and, and understand what's going on, and non-judgmentally observe them, and, and sort of mine them for insight. That's I think we can we can learn a lot about ourselves by doing that with our digital habits. I, I just think right now we're we're not typically encouraged to do so. Yeah, yeah. And you talk about in the book about developing new habits. Tell tell listeners maybe a, a little bit about some of those those habits. How can we be more mindful? And is yeah yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let you I'll let you take it away. Yeah, I mean, I think that. And, and I sort of end the book with, so the, the final chapter is this sort of exploration of uncertainty and the ways that we use um, digital tools often to try and ward off uncertainty, right? Because we're kind of hardwired to be averse to, to it and to seek certainty. Right. And I see in my own life all kinds of ways, both through religion and, and through the internet, that I've sought certainty and, and, and tried to feel sort of more secure and safe in that way. But I think we can also use digital tools to sort of recognize that life is uncertain and embrace it. But then at the very end, um, the velveteen habit. Yeah, the velveteen habit. Uh, Yeah, no, I I actually I I went back and I so for those that don't know, the the velveteen rabbit is a is a is a children's story. And and you you reference it several times in the book. And it's kind of used as as a touchstone uh, to go back to again and again, this question of, of realness what does it mean to be real right. and the the original story tells explores that very well it's about a little rabbit a toy rabbit that wants to be a real toy or or, or to, wants to be real to the to the boy that it belongs to and if anyone hasn't read it or it's been a while i really recommend going back to it i actually woke up this morning that's the first thing i did i reread the story oh um, oh i love that yeah, so at the end, I, I sort of revisit this story of the Velveteen Rabbit, which was my favorite story as a kid. And and I, I, I sort of reflect on the need for kind of stepping back in order to get perspective. So I don't, when it comes to kind of cultural criticism on the internet, there tend to be these two really broad categories, which I talk about in IRL. 
the kind of utopians who say the the internet is making us more connected yeah the ch- more the ch- human the cheerleaders these ways. as you say yeah yeah exactly and then the kind of apocalyptics um or the doomsday prophets <laughs> who say that the internet's making us more selfish more disconnected more polarized all these things and then there's the, the sort of folks in the middle the utilitarians who say the internet's not going away we have to learn to sort of you work with it and and i do i share that but i also think that as i said we can go sort of one step further and say that the internet actually provides us this sort of new opportunity to revisit these central questions of what it means to be human. Mm. But so while I'm not, I'm not a sort of apocalyptic about the internet, I do think that it is really easy in an age where you have sort of the ability to connect with others at your fingertips at all times. It's, it's easy to kind of mindlessly seek connection and to never really be disconnected Mm. but it's but in moments of disconnection we learn really important things about ourselves and so the the velveteen habit in my mind is i I sort of look at the way that the velveteen rabbit has to experience loss and separation from the the boy and and to experience that disconnection in order to sort of become real and i think we have to make an active decision in this time where it's it's super easy to be connected at any moment to to seek distraction or connection at the first sign of discomfort that we have to actually be purposeful about about disconnecting and stepping back and so that for me was one habit that last year when i was in the sort of final months of finishing the book i took a three-month social media sabbatical Mm -hmm. which was initially very difficult but i found it was very similar to the experience i was describing at the beginning of this conversation of sort of going for a walk at a time when the world isn't really awake yet and you're kind of alone with yourself and and maybe there's certain things about that that are uncomfortable Mm. um, or it's a space where uncomfortable thoughts can arise but if you're sort of always pushing those things away then you're not dealing with them and you're not aware that they're there Mm. and so that has been for me in a a time in my life when the first thing I do in the morning is grab my phone and look at it. And the last thing I do before I close my eyes at night is look at my phone. It takes work to, to disconnect, to step back. And, and, and yet that's, that feels critical. Mm. So that's a habit that I, I definitely, and I, I think it's clear from the book. I didn't sort of, the journey that I went on through the book didn't bring me to this place of of really figuring everything out and becoming this master at, at finding realness in my digital life. But it's definitely something I'm working on. Yeah. And you, you talk about how it's a messy process that, that your, your search for realness is itself kind of, you're grappling with things. You're kind of early on in the book, in the first chapter, you talk about how you went to a drag show and it was an amateur night. And that how there was something you know striking striking about that the the and you link that to to all of us right now on social media that are dealing with this very new kind of technology this very new kind of way of of existing and and all of us you say are amateurs they're all trying to figure this out trying to to learn how to exist in this space and there's going to be you know none of none of us are experts yet. Mm-hmm. But, but as I, what I, I think, so I also reference in that, uh, along with that drag story, I talk about when I was in high school and my mom made me go out for a team sport and I, I was really resistant to the idea because prior to that, I, I sort of stuck to the activities that I was naturally good at things that I could, where I could sort of easily excel things like the geography B and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And my siblings were very athletic. And so that was kind of their thing. But my mom sort of insisted that I go out for a sport. And so I tried out for cross country because I was such a horrible runner and especially a horrible distance runner. So it was kind of self-sabotage. I thought, okay, I'm going to go out for <laughs> this sport that I'm so bad at that there's no way I could make the team. But of course um, I didn't realize that everyone makes the team in cross country. <laughs> um, but what I, it ended up being this blessing in disguise because not only did I discover that I actually love running and I still run to this day, but I found that when you when you do something that you're not good at, you have this you have this opportunity to learn things that you can't learn when you're sort of sticking to the things that you're that already come naturally to you. Mm. That in that sort of 
messy, chaotic process of trying to become better at something that you're sort of bad at. You discover things about who you are. And I really feel, and, and that was definitely something I saw on Amateur Night as well when I saw some of the drag performers trying something they weren't good at yet, but also like discovering things about themselves and, and revealing things. And I think that the same kind of phenomenon exists in digital life right now, that we're all trying collectively to do something that doesn't come easily to us. Maybe it comes more easily to some than others. Yeah. But in that, we have an opportunity. There's this kind of slippage that happens. We reveal things to ourselves about ourselves. And that's what I think makes it such a ripe space for kind of reapproaching these central questions that for the, the entirety of human existence, we've been we've continued to sift through in each generation yeah. about who we are, about, about where we belong in the world and how we should respond to the world around us. And, and so I think there's real value there. Yeah. And so the question about uh, meaning making and it's a central one. And I think particularly for those, those of us who look at religions and our, our, our instinctual reaction is not to 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 tear them down and 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 make fun of them, but to see like okay, what's what's there? What value sure. can be can be found in these traditions? That quest for for meaning is is one that is really it, it, it's that's what religious traditions have been trying to get at for so long, and you have this really really beautiful image which you talk about another tattoo of yours, the fig tree tattoo, and. I guess, say, say a little bit about that, about the fig tree tattoo and what it yeah. symbolizes for you. Yeah, so it was inspired by um, one of my sort of all-time favorite works of fiction, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. And it, it comes from a part of the book where the protagonist is sort of imagining herself sitting in, in the, the crotch of a fig tree in the sort of split. And she's looking up in, into the branches and seeing all of these different fruits and within each fruit she sort of sees a different life that she might have one where she is a sort of high-powered editor at a magazine one where she's married and and at home and raising children and and in all of these different sort of possible futures she sees things that that draw her to it but she also knows that choosing one means not choosing all of the others and and so she feels frozen by indecision. She she doesn't know which which fruit to choose because sort of choosing one means renouncing the others. And and of course, right, the, the sort of moral here is that not choosing is a choice as well. And so because she can't decide, the fruit all sort of rot and fall to the ground mm. and die. And and I, I got that tattoo after I'd finished up my, my graduate studies in religion because I think for some time, I had felt like in order to sort of like I remember when I was studying Mahayana Soto Zen Buddhism and I was and I was gaining so much from what I was studying and I was like oh does this mean I need to become a Buddhist now because I'm sort of getting so much out of this or I remember encountering Sikhism and and seeing so much in the Sikh tradition that really resonated with me and feeling that same sort of impulse but but sort of recognizing that actually well it is true that sometimes we need to make choices that in that also require us to sort of sacrifice other possibilities that at least with the ways that humans have attempted to sort of make meaning throughout history we don't ha have to sort of limit ourselves to to one in fact part of what i find so valuable about being a humanist is that as humanists we try and draw from as many different sources of human knowledge as possible and that includes the ways that religious traditions have given us insight into what it means to be human mm -hmm. and so i actually i i think in my figs on the, the on that tattoo are different religious symbols but right. i found that yeah i can actually i can i can sample all the fruits in that regard <laughs> yeah and, and and right i agree entirely that being uh, fully committed to none means you can take and, and choose and integrate various various traditions but i think you also talk about how this path in some ways is is challenging because uh you often have to do the work yourself rather than being supported by a community it's about you have to go out, learn these texts yourselves and uh, yourself, interpret them in various ways. Maybe there are other people that are you can you can turn to and discuss these things. But uh, humanism, there, 
there aren't many humanist communities out there. And yeah. so, so we talked, talk, talk about the challenges, I guess, of, of yeah. approaching faith and, and spirituality in this way. Yeah, it is. I mean, you and I have discussed this before. It's, it's challenging. This book for me really emerged for sort of because of two things. One, some sort of personal circumstances that I write about in the book where I was kind of going through this year of immense transition in my life. My long-term relationship ended, my job ended. I, I sort of moved back to my home state after many years of this more independent life away from my family. And I was trying, I was sort of going through uh, an immense amount of, of sort of personal transition and tumult but I found myself continuing to sort of post online as if all was well. Mm. And, and I, I, wanted, I, I felt like there was this split between my sort of more complex offline experience and what I was sharing online, what I felt I could share online. And so I wanted to kind of investigate that tension. Whenever I sort of feel a tension in my life, that's the place I'm like drawn to most. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, a big part of what brought me back here was, or as I was coming back to Minnesota, was um, I was starting to work with some humanist groups here in Minnesota who wanted to explore the idea of a center for humanist life mm. that would bring together these different humanist communities here under sort of one big tent in a, a kind of brick and mortar space. And after having worked as a humanist community organizer for eight, eight years, I, I said to them, I'm definitely interested in this project, but I want to suggest that because the majority of humanist communities right now basically sort of look at religious communities and, and typically sort of look at like a Protestant Christian religious community and they say, let's sort of adapt this for a different population. Mm -hmm. So what, what can we sort of, what do religious communities offer people and how can we sort of secularize this? And th that certainly was the approach of the communities that I've worked in. But I, I found myself wondering whether or not there were some assumptions at work there about what humanists and other non-religious people actually want and need out of a, an experience of community. And so I suggested that we take a slightly different approach and, and actually do a, a kind of study of what the religiously unaffiliated are looking for in community. And fortunately, um, a, a handful of sociologists who have been studying the religiously unaffiliated were based here in Minnesota, and I was able to connect with them. And so I've been working with for the last four years now, I've been working with sociologists um, at the University of Minnesota and now UMass Boston, one of them, um, moved institutions to study the religiously unaffiliated. And what are some and, of the findings? Yeah, so we, well, one of my personal findings was that this is, this kind of approach takes a lot more time and, and money and work than I than I knew. <laughs> so you, you, don't, you don't just put up a, a Facebook poll and, uh, and, and yeah, see what exactly. comes in. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been so fortunate to work with these incredible sociologists and just learn so much from working with them. But I, I definitely underestimated how much time it takes, how much time it takes to find money to fund this sort of thing, especially because a lot of the funding that exists for the kind of sociology of religion, like if you're studying the nuns, that sort of sits in this weird in-between place where there aren't few funders who are sort of interested in because it, it sort of smacks of religion. So some people don't want to touch it but it's also not overtly religious. Mm -hmm. So other funders aren't interested. Anyway, we did manage to find some funding. We were able to run a sort of initial run of the, the survey and the sociologists have been working with, we've been sort of prepping some of our findings. And so that we should have more to say on that soon. But one of the things we did ask was whether or not respondents felt like they found meaning online or offline and whether they found a sense of community online or offline. And we did find, and this, again, this was sort of where some of my interests emerged, that a lot of people who said that they found meaning online also found, said they found community online, whereas people who said that they found meaning offline found community offline mm. as well. And so, you so, know, there's so, so people, kind of, people seem to kind of like divide on, on, on where they prefer to exist. Exactly. And, and, and to me, it, it underscored this sort of sense that there is this kind of split between the digital and, and offline life, mm -hmm. which I have to admit, it, it did surprise me. I mean, I, I love to be surprised by research. I love when, I mean, it, sure, it feels good when your own sort of 
uh, suspicions are confirmed, Mm -hmm. but I actually find it more exciting when they're kind of contradicted. And I think I went into it thinking, oh, well, I've always been a kind of meaning and community oriented person. And so I've sought it out offline and I've sought it out online. And my guess was that people who said that they were sort of meaning and community oriented would seek it out in both places. And that wasn't the case. Yeah. And I, I do think a lot of that has to do with this kind of this sense that there's a split between the two. But anyway, back more back to your point or your, your question about humanist communities. I do think that and this this extends far beyond religion. I think we're moving in a direction culturally of a sort of more individual experience. So people are moving out of these religious institutions are also sort of disaffiliating from political institutions. We see more and more people kind of moving away from the, the two party approach to politics mm-hmm. and and wanting to sort of have a more individual sense of identity. But I think that there are re- that presents real challenges because for all of their their flaws, religious institutions provide really valuable things to people. Mm-hmm. They offer regular practices that encourage you to reflect on your life. Whereas online, even though it is a space that we go to sort of find meaning, we're not necessarily thinking about the things we're doing online as kind of regular practices that push us to ask ourselves important questions about what we're doing and why. Mm -hmm. And so the rituals that have emerged over many, many years through sort of trial and error in religious traditions aren't going to just be sort of replicated and spring up overnight online. And you, Um, and you also point out, you, you, oh, you also ahead. point out how in online uh, communities, if you're searching for for meaning, you can you can find people that agree with you. You can find people that will reinforce your existing beliefs, and as opposed to, yeah. and, and if and if somebody you follow or or listen to challenges you or says something you don't like, you can very easily unfollow them. You can search elsewhere. As opposed to in a community, you are uh, kind of bound by more social social connections there you can't just check out as easily or or you have to you're sometimes forced to confront things that uh you yourself do not want to or might not confront on your own that's exactly right and institutions have wielded that sort of social power in ways that really harm people many of us have experienced that but they can also hold you into into sort of uncomfortable relationships and force you to stay the course and find a way to to sort of navigate those things. And so I think that religious communities have often functioned as communities of accountability for people mm-hmm. that hold them accountable to themselves, to sort of asking themselves, am I am I living in the world in a way that's sort of in, in accordance with my values mm-hmm. and also accountable to others, to the people that they're in community with. And I think the internet, in some ways, it frees us up from some of the constraints of communities. Like there is there are certainly pluses to the fact that you can just close out of a window if if something goes wrong. I mean, the first place I ever came out to anyone as queer was online because I was able to kind of come out anonymously to digital strangers. And I knew that if it went bad, I could just close out of the window. Right. And it was a way to kind of practice what I needed to do in other parts of my life. And so there are things about that that are really freeing for people. And you also don't have also you also don't have the um, the kind of as 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 much of the negative aspects of religion where you you are maybe guilted or or shamed or or kept mm-hmm. kept in this community kind of against your will. Although guilt and shame right, and all this stuff happens online too, but yeah, the coercion piece is is sort of one thing we can let go of in some ways. But but there are, there's also re- I mean again. I I know that when I participated in religious communities, I was often like left to my own devices. I'm often going to not live up to my highest principles. Mm -hmm. I'm going to choose the more self-interested things. But if I'm a part of a community that can kind of force me to look in the mirror a little bit more often and ask myself whether or not I'm living in a way that aligns with my values. And, 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 And so part of what I, what I, hope to invite with the book is an opportunity for us to think about if the internet is going to be an institution in which we sort of wrestle with these big kinds of questions where we sort through huge pieces of our identity can we use it to make ourselves a little bit more accountable to ourselves and to one another and right now i think the infrastructure is just not really there but that doesn't mean that it's not possible Mm -hmm. um, to build it but I think it will require effort. Hey there. 
I'd like to let you know about a couple of new words that I found that I'd like to add to the Aethosaurus. Now, for those who don't know, the Aethosaurus is a collection of words that express deep and meaningful emotions, but that are decoupled from the baggage typically associated with words that come from religious traditions. Joanne from London, uh, a listener, sent me a few of her favorite words of this type from other languages, and I really, really loved some of them. The one I want to introduce you to today is yugen. It's a Japanese word that means an awareness of the universe that triggers emotional responses too deep and mysterious for words. Wikipedia has a really great section on Japanese aesthetics, and I looked up yugen there to give some context to its meaning and its background. Yugen is about that which is beyond what can be said, but it's not an allusion to another world. It is about this world, this experience. There's a poem by Ziyami Motokiyo, which exemplifies instances where you might feel yugen. It goes like this. To watch the sun sink behind a flower-clad hill. To wander on in a huge forest without thought of return. To stand upon the shore and gaze after a boat that disappears behind distant islands. To contemplate the flight of wild geese seen and lost among the clouds. And subtle shadows of bamboo on bamboo. Chris's early morning walks, which he described at the start of this episode, could be another example of Yugen. And I know that every time that I walk into a forest or find myself alone with nature, and I quiet my mind, I find myself entering into a similar space. It's important to have words for these kinds of feelings because once we can name it, we can legitimize that feeling. It allows us to notice it next time it moves through us and allows us to communicate it to somebody else. And for those of us who are non-believers, who want to express these deep and profound human emotions without using words like transcendent and magical, words like this can be really powerful and really important in communicating that which is most deep about being human. If you have other words like this that you'd like to contribute to the growing list, send me an email at daniel at reenchantmentpod.com. And now, let's get back to the show. Recently, I've been talking with others in the humanist, atheist world about community and community building. So I talked recently with Bart Campolo about his uh, caravan community. I talked with Nick Fish about his attempts at creating, encouraging, and really highlighting the communities of humanists and and atheists that have done well and that have lasted for 10, 15, 20 years. So there are definitely people out there that that haven't given up on the in-person, congregational-ish style model. But I, I find it interesting that as you as you pointed out this this kind of model is oftentimes a a protestant christian importation uh, there are other non-congregational ways of of finding meaning finding purpose finding finding community one of the first things that springs to mind for me is burning man mm-hmm. there are yeah. also pagan pagan like gatherings that the, the these and burning man is really just like a, an urban modern pagan event where you you meet uh, maybe a, a couple of times a year very intense rituals intense community oftentimes yeah. in nature outdoors and then you 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 go home like it's not a week and you can forge these really intense bonds i mean one of my exes met his now husband at burning man and then they got married at burning man right <laughs> and, right right and they were really they were really sad this year that they couldn't go to burning man because it's been such an important part of their relationship part of their community and and i i write in irl about this experience of of meeting uh, a friend on Twitter who is involved in the furry community who invited me to come see him DJ at the closing party of a furry convention mm. and, and sort of going into this experience with some assumptions like that. I think I had this assumption that um, who, who, what are, what are furries for those that don't know? 
Sure, yeah. So people in the furry community sort of create this animal um, identity, this animal persona, as as um, it's referred to, and then and will sort of act that out in in various ways. Some people create sort of large um, fur suits, which are, are kind of costumes that they wear. Others use sort of animated avatars online, and so. I think I had assumptions going into the experience that being a furry was a, a kind of a way of hiding in some ways. You're sort of putting on this this costume and you're pretending to be something else. And what I discovered when I went to the convention is that actually it's this, for, for many people involved in the community, it's this way of kind of expressing things about themselves that maybe are harder to express in other parts of their lives or a way of kind of exploring identity of of maybe taking on a character that has characteristics that are maybe things you're trying to kind of grow into or, or cultivate in yourself. And, and I was, I was really blown away by my experience there, but how, what, what an, a kind of intense experience of community there was there mm. um, in ways that I, my, my sort of closest parallel experiences are probably like being in, in religious or humanist communities where, people are coming together with this shared sense of purpose, the shared identity, this desire to, to find a sense of connection in a world that can feel so chaotic and isolated. And so, and, and, and similarly, I think a lot of times people, there's been this, this sense for many, many years that the internet is kind of that people who find community online are people who just like can't find it anywhere else. And they sort of go to the internet as a last resort there because they're geographically isolated or because they, you know, have such niche interests that they couldn't find community anywhere else. But even if some people sort of go to the internet thinking that they can't find community anywhere else, I've, I've discovered and felt it myself that people can have these really rich experiences of community online. Mm. But, but I, yeah, I, I think like for humanists, I'm glad that people, I, I think unfortunately it's, it's kind of goes back to what I was saying about how digital life is so new. People who are trying to create humanist communities right now are trying to do something so new that it's, it's unfair to expect a humanist community to, feel or function at a similar level to a religious community because religious communities are building on something that has had the benefit of many, many, many years of trial and error. Right. Um, and humanist communities are, are trying to sort of create something out of thin air almost. And so, of course, it's no wonder that we draw on the, the work that others have done in our attempt to kind of create something for ourselves. And yeah. And so I... I I remain very supportive of that work. I think it's I think it's important work, and I'm I'm involved in humanist groups here in Minnesota. I, I actually I guess technically I'm a Unitarian Universalist now because I'm a <laughs> I'm a member of a First Unitarian Society here, which is a historically humanist UU congregation. So they've been a humanist UU community from their very founding. Oh, so if you go there on a on a Sunday, you'll you'll never hear. Like they don't do prayers, you won't hear people talk about God. It's it's an sort of explicitly overtly humanist community. Yeah, um, yeah. I was I, so I joined, and I guess yeah, that technically makes me a UU. <laughs> yeah, no, you, UU is 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 very interesting. I've been doing a lot of thinking and, and, and looking at that tradition. And you know, for those who don't know, Unitarian Universalism, it kind of grew out of uh, Christian roots, but you know, it's 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 let go of a lot of what Christianity, you know, stereotypically is. And, you know, yeah, there are there are humanists, there are atheists, there are Buddhists, there are, you know, Jewish people. It's interestingly I've heard I've heard criticism of <laughs> of UUs that, you know, it's too it's too much of a hodgepodge. It's, there's there's everyone's sure. like there to, you know, get along and say like, oh, you know, I, I respect you, you know, you respect me, great, great. You know, but it it, it, it is it is more complex than that I find. It, it depends UUs seem to vary a lot from from each other and it depends who's there, who's who who founded it, who are who's leading it. And yeah, there can be there can be some congregations that are very, very, you know, that, that, you know, people might be surprised how, how well they could fit with that. Right. I mean, that's, I think, one, one really beautiful thing that Unitarian Universalism has offered is autonomy in, in these 
congregations. And so it's, it's provided the kind of structural support for a humanist community here in Minneapolis to thrive for decades and uh, upon decades and, uh, and to sort of, you know, because here in, in the greater twin cities in Minneapolis, St. Paul, we have, I think six or seven UU congregations maybe actually, and there might even be more. I, I, I'm not exactly sure of the figure, but you know, and so there's sort of this local, it's kind of a joke, but not really that, you know, you can find the UU congregation that fits exactly sort of what you're looking for. So there's one UU congregation that is more overtly Christian. There's one that, you know, the the First Unitarian Society, which is very overtly humanist. And, you know, there's all these different sort of depending on what you're looking for, you can find find a UU community here that would be a good fit for you. And so I, I totally understand the struggle that some people have with Unitarian Universalism's sort of broadness, right? That they're united by these these sort of core principles, but that they allow for a, a diversity of beliefs. But it's also a model that's allowed a, a humanist community here to to really take root. And, and every time, you know, one of my favorite things about being a member of First Unitarian, and obviously you don't have to be a member to do this, but one of one of my brothers and I every year go to their winter solstice um, celebration, where they they put on a sort of winter solstice play that different members of the congregation act in, and there's a meal, and there's folk dancing, and they even do humanist versions of of various holiday carols, and so. My favorite one is, what is I think it's Angels We Have Heard on High, the one that goes, Gloria. That's my beautiful singing. <laughs> um, but they they turned it into a, a carol about solar power. And so it goes, solar power. It's very silly, but also it's like, it's pretty charming in its own way. And so, yeah, man, but, you know, since beginning in, I think, 2016, before I had even moved back, my brother and I started going to that every year, and it's become this little tradition for us that's really special. And so that's that's the kind of thing that an institution like that that has been able to kind of take root, and because it's part of this broader network, and it has the support and the resources of this broader network, has been able to develop those kinds of things that as, as we've talked about, are kind of harder when you're trying to build something from scratch often. And, and again, those kinds of challenges and opportunities exist in our lives online. It's like we're trying to create systems and structures for making meaning and finding connection online. And, and a lot of that sort of building from scratch is going to be trial and error. And there's a lot of good that comes in that, but there's also going to be immense challenges. And I think that's something many of us have experienced online. Mm. So IRL, when when can people find it in book uh, bookshops or online? Yeah, so I, it's what even is today's date? It's the tenth, so it's yeah. out in ten days. I'm sure whenever people are listening to this, it maybe it'll already even be out at that point. But it's out October twentieth, and yeah, it's available for pre-order now. And I actually I know that some stores even already. I saw a picture online yesterday of a bookshop that already has it out on the table so you can <laughs> definitely get it already in different places yeah, yeah I, I, um, but the the and i yeah what were you gonna say i was oh i was just gonna say the best the best sort of place to find out more would just be to go to irlbook.com there's a bunch of different pre-order links there and there's a discussion guide if anyone's wanting to sort of use it in a, a community setting or anything like that there's and there will be more resources on that website soon, too. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I, I highly recommend anybody that's uh, interested in learning about, I guess, a more balanced and a more deep, deep thought take on social media and the internet world to really consider reading IRL. And also, it's all of the all of the personal stories, Chris, that you put in. You end up, I, I end up feeling like I know you so well. And even uh, you, you mentioned at the start of this call that well, Tuna, the the dog that appears throughout the book, recently passed away, and uh, it really it 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 it, 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 it was sad because <laughs> it was it was it was a character in your book, and, yeah. and I came to know I came to know Tuna a little bit. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was. I mean, yeah, I'm still. It, she her death was very sudden and only a couple of months ago so i'm still processing it quite a bit but it was what was so uh, so i've written this essay that i might publish I, I haven't decided yet but it's kind of about her and also about how much the internet was a part of our relationship because 
I just posted so much about her online that all of these people ended up feeling so connected to her. And when she died, there was this really intense response to a degree that I really wasn't expecting because I had shared so much of her online. And she even, she went viral earlier this year because she was watching, I was watching one of the the democratic primary debates and she was kind of reacting to the TV and I thought it was funny. So I, I recorded a video and posted it and it ended up being video was viewed like um, uh, almost a million times, I think. And, it, and she ended up being put on t-shirts and, and we, and as a result, we ended up having a, this is one of the silliest things that's ever happened to me, but the Sanders campaign reached out and asked if uh, Jane Sanders, Bernie Sanders wife could have a meeting with tuna. And so we had a, we had a, a meeting where I was just the, the plus one for my dog meeting uh, Jane Sanders. Um, and it was, so it was this very strange experience all because of the internet, but then that, that happened in February and then she died this summer. And so this experience of all these people online um, feeling so connected to her and then trying to sort of navigate her sudden death and, and wanting, feeling this responsibility to share that with people online because I had shared so much of her life with them. It just brought up all these things that I've been sort of sifting through the last few years as I've been working on this book. So yeah, to, but I, I am grateful that she is captured in the book in some way um, that feels nice yeah and it's that whole relationship is a testament to the authenticity that can be found and felt online it's a source of real feeling and uh, yeah yeah well chris the the last little segment uh, that i'd like to do is something called a thesaurus the thesaurus for atheists and okay. i ask guests about a new word that helps describe deep and and purposeful feelings and emotions but that doesn't have a religious baggage associated with it oh. do you have any kind of word to contribute to the athesaurus oh i love that yeah so one of my as I was sort of coming to the end of working on the book, something that really helped tie everything together for me, because there's this exploration of uncertainty at the end of the book and, and how we sort of often use our digital tools to try and resist uncertainty, but how uncertainty is, is and, and being able to sort of learn to live with it and embrace it is central to having a life that's rich with meaning. And this was something that became really clear to me. One of, one of the most profound books I've probably ever read, honestly, was um, This Life by Martin Hagland, which I, I reference a number of times in IRL. He is based out of Yale and he this this life is is a, a sort of argument and it's a very it's a very approachable book. But he argues that in order for life to be meaningful, then we need to have this sense that that everything ends, that that life will end, that all the things that we care about will end. And so he, you know, he argues that atheism makes life meaningful because it there's this sense that when life is over it's over and that's sort of why anything matters at all because of the risk of loss and then he sort of builds on that to make this argument for democratic socialism by saying you know if if that is the case then time is our most precious resource and all people deserve to have time in their lives to be able to ask themselves what makes their life meaningful and how they should spend their time and so that book was a big part of my sort of coming to feel that uncertainty is 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 very important because if if we're sort of constantly filling our time with busyness whether it's by sort of mindlessly scrolling online or by living in a in a society where we sort of feel the pressures of the demands of capitalism at all times to be working to be productive etc we we don't leave room in our our lives for uncertainty is there a particular but, word or phrase that embodies well, it so I was going to say, so it brought me to this concept of this is this is the phrase that's a long build up. <laughs> I realize part of it is I'm I'm such a like proselytizer now for Martin Hagelin's book This Life. I just like want every humanist and every person to read it. I'm just obsessed with the book. But but anyway, so it, it the, the term is negative capability, which I write about in the book, and it's it's a term that emerged from a letter written by John Keats, uh, a poet. I think it was 18. In the early 1800s, I think like 1817, he wrote a letter where he said that a great thinker is someone who can be in uncertainty, in mystery, in doubt. And and so someone who can practice negative capability is someone who can follow a thought, uh, even if it leads to sort of a sense of uncertainty or, or, or confusion rather than a sort of certitude. And negative capability feels really important to me 
as an atheist because I think one of the things that I found so restrictive about religion was this sense that there was cert- all this certainty about what and of course, I've come to recognize that that is sort of one expression of religion it doesn't reflect religion as a whole. In fact, there are many religious traditions that place a great emphasis on the sort of constant striving after knowledge and, and the value of uncertainty. But I cite in, in that part of the book, I cite Monica Miller, who's a humanist academic, and who talks about how humanists would really benefit from embracing uncertainty more rather than seeking a sort of sense that we we have everything figured out. And so I rather than uncertainty being this sort of source of anxiety, I think it can be a really rich source of of meaning and information. And so negative capability would be the the kind of term I would want to introduce um, into the Aethosaurus. And it's, it's the capability to to dwell in with with uncertainty to um, Yeah. 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 Or it reminds me. Yeah, thank you for very succinctly summarizing. What <laughs> took me a million years to say. <laughs> Sorry, you were going to say something. No, it, it reminds me of this this quote that I like: "To be un, to be uncertain is uncomfortable, but to be certain is absurd." Mm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Anyway, Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining me on Reenchantment. And, uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. I really enjoyed our conversation. I know, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, and I, I hope IRL is a big success. And yeah, I look forward to uh, hopefully t- uh, talking with you about your third book sometime down the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it took eight years between the two. So hopefully you're still doing it. All right, I'll put, I'll put it on my calendar. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right, thanks, Chris. All right, thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. If you'd like to purchase any of the books mentioned in this episode, go to reenchantmentpod.com and click on the bookshop link on the front page. There you can buy both of Chris's books, IRL and Faithiest, as well as The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath and This Life by Martin Hayland. And when you do, 10% of the proceeds will go towards supporting Reenchantment. Because Reenchantment is an affiliate of bookshop.org, you'll also be supporting indie bookshops around the country. So go to the website and treat yourself to a book. Once again, thank you for listening. I'll see you next time on Reenchantment.